Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Sarah Fawn Montgomery about her new collection of essays, Halfway from Home. These essays explore, in nuanced and beautiful prose, Montgomery's journey to find a place, or perhaps a place of mind, she might call home. We follow Montgomery from childhood to adulthood, from California to the Midwest to the East Coast. This is a journey that asks what it means to grow into wisdom and to love this burning earth, which, in one way or another, is where we all must find ourselves a home. Halfway from Home is a book for any of us who have ever struggled to belong and who very much want to. Sarah Fawn Montgomery, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited to talk about your new book. It's an essay collection called Halfway from Home, uh, and it's beautiful and powerful and intricate and expansive and deep, and I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and and I was thinking as a a way that we could just start off... um, it's an evocative title, and readers might not know the world and the material they're entering just from it. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of lead us into the, the world of the book, sort of what, what are you taking up in this, and, and, um, and how did it call to you? Yeah, so for me, home has always been a, a strange concept or a strange sort of... Um, I guess liminal space. Um, I'm somebody who's from a very non-traditional family. I'm one of eight siblings. Um, and when the oldest sibling was 50, the youngest was 15. Um, mm. my, my parents adopted a lot. So every few years they'd adopt, um, you know, one new sibling or sometimes two new siblings. And then during that time, they also would take in um, children and families and um, community members that needed a place to stay. So our, our physical home was always full of bodies that were coming and going. Um, and the space was changing a lot, even overnight. Um, and then as I became an adult, I, I moved a lot uh, for college, which is something I think that a lot of, you know, Gen X, millennials, Gen Zers do as they sort of make their way in the world. So I left my really small rural working class California town to go to college and then to go to graduate school. And then I left the West Coast for the Midwest to pursue my PhD. And now I'm in Massachusetts on the East Coast where I work as a professor. And so um, finding my way in the world has always been about kind of leaving home and trying to make a new home somewhere else. And so home has always been very sort of impermanent to me. And so that was what drove the, me to start looking at the at the collection and thinking of this collection, which was, you know, an examination of how do you make a home when you know you're going to be leaving? Or how do you claim a place when that place doesn't exist anymore? Or you're not the same version of yourself that you once were? Mm. Um, 
And all of this is filtered through the lens of climate change, right? Because place doesn't last anymore. I mean, the places that we love, the places that we seek solace in are constantly under attack, um, are constantly changing and under siege by different storms and, and the effects of climate change. And so all of this exploration is grounded in um, examinations of climate change and the environment. Yeah, I, I love how you ended us on this moment of thinking, not just of home as this place that we we often think of as as personal, right? That this is the place I go to, this is the home that I have, but the earth is a home and whether or not it's the same and how it's not. Um, and, you know, your book starts with at least one epigram that tries to give us some sense of what a home can be. Um, and uh, and I think so many people ever since the pandemic especially have thought about this question of like, well, what does it mean to be home or isolated at home? Or is this place that I'm isolated in a home and how? Um, could you tell us maybe there are so many great examples, um, but like how does this this wonderful terrain that you've laid out for us, this material play out when you're storytelling? Um, because that's such a different mode than, than say, you know, I asked you a thematical question and, um, and there's just such beautiful story and character that's in the collection. And I, I want us to get that out there in front, um, because you're not writing a nonfiction book that's, you know, on the concept of home and on the concept of climate change. It's very much a series of, of stories and memories and connections and, um, heartbreaks. Yeah, um, for me, the way that I think of home is very much grounded in my childhood experiences, and I'm I'm forever fascinated by the child's voice, and so the child's POV and the voice shows up in a lot of these essays. So some of the essays I, I juxtapose childhood memories about um, experiences. So. For example, um, one of my favorite childhood memories is digging in my beloved treasure hole and pulling out rocks and old pennies and just getting very excited by what I was able to find, um, you know, in the ground, essentially. Um, and then that, that essay also juxtaposes the adult voice, because as an adult, I found out, um, you know, in my 20s that my father was the one, of course, who was putting everything in my treasure hole. I just didn't realize it. And I love that wonderful juxtaposition between child wonder and adult realizations. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to incorporate childhood wonder into my everyday adult life. So the collection weaves those different voices together and the child makes a lot of appearances. So there's, you know, the essay about digging and the treasure hole and it explores concepts of what it means to bury things, what it means to unearth things, um, social and historical facts, family secrets, um, you know, things about yourself that you might have hidden and, and unearthed many years later. Uh, there's essays about picking berries with my family as a child. Um, I grew up with a lot of food scarcity. And as a child, I remember being very hungry all the time. But as an adult, I look back and I'm amazed by what my parents were able to do with nothing, like the, the food that they were able to create from very little in the in the cupboards. Um, and there's stories of, you know, the landscapes of California, the monarch groves where the monarchs go every winter to, to sort of huddle for warmth. There's stories of the Midwest, so looking at the fossil record of the Midwest and um, the sea that once was on the Great Plains um, that a lot of folks don't know about or, or we forget sometimes, um, and explorations of my new home in, in uh, Massachusetts on the East Coast, looking at 
the art of scrimshaw and how the act of carving pictures and stories into bone can be a way to think of, of trauma and, and processing our own stories. Um, the stories about the forest fungal networks out here and the ways that those can connect to our pandemic responses and our current um, fractured social and political climates. So while a lot of the stories have broader themes, um, they're always grounded in scene. They're always grounded in moments outside, moments as a child playing, um, because I think that those moments are the ones that speak to readers most. Yeah, most certainly. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of the the essay about bones, and um, there's something so interesting. You know, I'm also an essayist about writing these intimate moments, um, and then coming and you know having a conversation in which we invite other people and talk about our work. And I realize, like, I know I know about Sarah Fawn's pelvic. <laughs> bones <laughs> right like that that this is just such a a kind of fascinating thing and um and the way in which the the intimacy and disclosure that happens in these personal stories um creates i think some of its energy and magnetism mm. um and that that's very powerful i wonder if you could talk a, a little bit more about that child's voice i think those of us who who have written memoirs and things we know about this shift of like moving backwards and forwards mm -hmm. in time and and what it means to speak from now and what it means to speak from then um but it the the child's voice in this collection is so evocative and it's not easy to pull off it's not the same thing as writing you know ya or children's literature when you're doing it in this mode um would you be able to to tell us a little bit more about do you think of it as technique? Do you think of it as excavation? Do you still hear that voice now? Um, how does that work for you? Yeah, I love I love that question. This is one of my favorite um, sort of craft techniques, mostly because I think our our child selves are so unaffected and unfiltered, right? They they haven't mm -hmm. been um, they haven't been shaped by the world as much, and they're so full of wonder. For for me, the child's voice first and foremost it it shapes the way I view image, the way that the images um, come into the work, and mm -hmm. because I'm also a poet, image image is everything. So if I'm writing about, um, for example, my father, right? My father comes up a lot in this collection. If I'm writing about my father from an adult perspective, I'm I'm his height. I'm going to be talking about maybe looking at his eyes or seeing the, the, the crinkles around his eyes when he smiles. If I'm a child, I'm looking at his shoes. I'm looking at his boots. They're caked with cement. I can smell the sawdust on his boots because I'm, I'm so short. I'm, I'm, that's that's how, how tall I am. So the images shape a lot of what happens. And I find that children notice really wonderful um, images that a lot of a lot of us just overlook as adults. So an adult who's maybe writing about a family gathering might talk about the conversations or the food that's being served. A child might talk about the way the light looks coming through the lace curtains in the kitchen and the patterns that it casts on the floor, right? Because they don't know what's happening in the conversations. They don't quite mm -hmm. understand. And so I love trying to think about what a child would notice um, and in those moments, you have an opportunity, you can leave it all in the child's po you know, point of view. So I can write a whole scene about my father's boots and, and the sawdust and the cement and how that shapes my love of the outdoors or how that makes me brave and strong when I go to school and I don't feel that way. Or I can 
sort of juxtapose the child's perspective with a little bit, I, I can infuse it with a little bit of adult wisdom. So I can still be writing about the boots and the cement and, and the sawdust, but I can talk about how as an adult, I realize what it means to use your body to do manual labor and what manual labor over a lifetime does to a body and how that reshapes the way that I view my childhood um, and my father and, and some of his toughness on me and my siblings. So again, you can kind of choose where you focus, but I, I really think it comes down to those those details and noticing what a child would notice um, and allowing yourself to be full of awe in the ways that a child would. I mean, a child would notice the footprint. A child would notice, you know, a speck of, of red mud on a shoelace. And why is it red this time? Yesterday it was it was gray mud. Um, and so I just love that opportunity to play around with image. Yes, I do. I, I love that answer and and thinking about it in image is very is very powerful and illuminating. Um, as I'm hearing you talk about it, it also seems like you can think about childhood as a form of attention mm -hmm. yeah. and childhood as a form of questioning. Yes. Yeah. And There's an openness, an openness yeah. to children, right? They they don't they don't know yet and and they want to know and, and they want to entertain multiple possibilities, right? When a child says why and you give them an answer and they go, no, but why that? But now why that? Um, and that's what we do as essayists, right? We're all about questioning and looking at things from many angles. So I think that the voice lends itself well to the genre. Mm. Yeah. The natural disposition of the child is to be an essayist. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I'm I'm always looking for, you know, I, we, we both work with many writers and, and then in our own work is that, that there are some dangers perhaps that come with the childhood perspective of, of infantilizing what it means to be mm -hmm. a child or, or making precious in ways that I often worry actually devalues or diminishes the full humanity of the child, mm -hmm. you know, the sentimental American view that can exist for children. And so one of the things I love about what you've shared with us is that it it gives full integrity to the child's perspective as as a different way of perception or being or questioning um, rather than a, a small adult version of that or a, a misinformed adult version of that. Um, yeah. yeah. And I feel that in your work, like the child is a full person rather yeah, I, than a mini adult. <laughs> right. Well, I think sometimes with, with that sort of sentimental or, or saccharine or, you know, fully innocent voice of children that, that can sometimes happen, we don't let children be conflicted, right? And children mm -hmm. are full of conflict. You know, they, they're sad when their puppy is sad. They're, they wonder why it rains. They wonder why mommy is smiling when her eyes show something else behind them. And so letting a child be conflicted and letting a child acknowledge that there's tensions in a moment or tensions in family secrets, um, even if they don't fully understand those yet, I think is, um, is important to, to getting that fully realized version of the child that you were talking about. Yes, yes, I love that. And the child, of course, not being able to, to understand it in the way that we might say an adult would, gets to dwell in it more fully. Mm -hmm. um, but I often think that the, the childhood perspective can expose, right, if, if there's something that's obdurate to un our understanding and we can't figure it out, 
the adult will often like put a false construction to make sense of it and the kid just lets it stand in its full problematic wonder. Yes, absolutely. And and children don't have our, our biases that we have as adults. We bring those to every story we tell, whether we intend to or not, right? We our bias shows our, our old wounds and our grudges against stories and narratives and family members and ourselves. They show up whether we want them to or not. And the child the child doesn't do that. Yeah. Allows for a more complicated story, I think. What what are the biases that that you have to fight when you sit down to do an essay? I I have my own, but right, if what are the stories that that you don't want to tell or do want to tell that you have to think like, ooh, I need to swerve from there, right? Like this is this is a seraphon biasy rather than a a road to the truth. Does that or maybe that doesn't come up to you? Maybe you're you're bias free. <laughs> no, no, full full of bias. Um, my my main thing as a writer that and it's something that I'm I'm so happy that I write nonfiction and I think it's something that nonfiction gives me is the ability to be messy on the page. Um, I'm so rarely or I try so rarely to be messy in real life, um, and the page invites conflict and it invites messiness and it invites all of those. Um, character flaws that we might hide in the professional space or in our personal lives. Um, but on the page, you have to have those because that's those make for the most compelling narrators. I don't want to read a narrator who comes across as, as pristine. I want a narrator who makes me feel better about my messy self. And so the genre invites me to, um, to be complicated, to have emotional reactions. And the more that I write nonfiction and the more that I go back to a story and revise it, the more I allow myself to have conflicting emotions, the more I allow myself to put my biases against, I don't know, family stories or family members or mistakes I've made. I, I can put those more fully on the page and then I can kind of explore why did I react that, that way? Why, you know, why was that the way the family story was told or the way that I reacted to it? Um, so I love that it invites me to be a, a messier narrator than I often want to be in the real world as a person. Oh, that's great. Could we launch a hypothesis that might be counterintuitive that I could imagine would be helpful if writers are listening to this, that what the essay form allows you to do from revision to revision is to go back and make your piece more messy rather than less yes. yeah yes, absolutely and and to make to make yourself more messy and to embrace that i mean honestly i i think a lot of us we probably construct ourselves more in the real world right we construct our personas more in the real world than we do on the page i think the genre of nonfiction allows you to to deconstruct the persona that you present to the real world and and to be more authentic on the page um i think it invites that yeah the mess that we all are gets to, to get there. Well, th this might be a great moment to just talk a, a little bit about form because I think you've in this in this book found a way to use form to to present that, to contain it, to manifest it. Um, so most of the essays are written in sections, um, and some of them have a kind of explicit conceit. Um, I'm thinking of essays like dig sites or lessons in cartography. Um, there's one where each section begins with a different kind of stone um, that's quite beautiful. Um, and even the essays that aren't like that, they do work in sections of sometimes less than a page, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and the ones that... And many of them, I think maybe all of them? No, no, not all of them. But they have little fires. <laughs> 
as the so when you look through the book, you look at just flame after flame after flame. Um, so so maybe you could talk a little bit about this use of the section, or if you use a different term, fragment, or or whatever it might be. Um, but also that that type of type of I don't know pictorial decision to use the fire um, as the transitional piece between sections. Yeah. So um, whenever I, I write an essay, I often think form first. I, I will sometimes pick the form before I've decided what to write, quite honestly, um, because it's a bit like a puzzle for me. So um, the essay that you mentioned before that uses a each section is titled after a different stone. I, I love rocks. I, I collect rocks as a child. I, I still collect rocks. I'm really into you know displaying different you know, geodes and crystals and even rocks I find on the street, quite honestly. Um, and so that one, I, I knew I just wanted to write an essay where rocks were the central focus because I wanted people to think about um, rocks in their own lives and think about um, the earth and land because this is so much a, a land-based environmental book. Um, with having that structure as the starting place then allowed me to think more thematically about what was happening in my childhood when I was collecting those rocks and what was happening in my adult life as I was collecting rocks. And then the themes, you know, built in around that. So that's an essay that's very much about my father, about um, gender roles that I didn't understand as a child and those gender roles and how problematic they became um, as I aged and how I, how I viewed my family and the way that gender works within my family, um, you know, much differently as an adult. Um, so sometimes the essays start with the form. So cardinal directions, the same thing. I wanted to, I was interested in maps. I wanted to write an essay using cartographical terms. And so the terms came first and it became a grounding way to um, sort of sec segment the information or, or create different thematic sections. Um, often in the essays, I write in really short fragments and I love doing this. It's one of my favorite ways to approach an essay. Again, it usually comes um, theme first or um, fact first. I love research. So for example, um, there's an essay in this collection about how I don't like clocks and I think time is terrible. I, I think time is just a dreadful thing that humans invented. Um, I knew I wanted to write an essay about how I didn't like clocks. Um, and so the essay really began with me brainstorming moments from my childhood where I had to learn to tell time and I had to do timed tests. Um, and then there were brainstorm sections from my adulthood, um, daylight savings time, you know, having to switch back all my clocks at my house. And then I did research about different kinds of timekeeping devices. And then once I have all of those pieces, I essentially just play Tetris and I Tetris them in, into position together. And I love this process because you can create different layers of meaning by moving those sections around. So if I start off an essay with a section from childhood, it creates one entry point into the topic of blocks and timekeeping. If I start the essay off with a research section about the doomsday clock or Y2K, it creates a different entry point into that. Um, and so I love that movement um, within those sections. And it also creates blank space for the reader to 
pause, to question, to, to read or write themselves into the topic. So they might think of their own experience with clocks or their own experience um, with, you know, timekeeping or what it means to keep records. Uh, so that's a, a sort of format or form that I use um, quite a bit. Um, I will say it's also very practical for me, which I, I get asked this question a lot about the use of segments. Um, as a disabled writer, I can't write for very long. I can't write for sometimes more than 15, maybe 20 minutes at a time. Um, and so the, the segments become quite useful for me because I can write a segment at a time. I can write, you know, a half a page section at a time. Um, and so as a disabled writer, it's a, it's a form that I've created that allows me to, um, to access essays and to create um, in, in a way that is accessible for me. Um, and then as as for the the flames, and I love that you noticed that and brought that up. I can take no credit for that, honestly. That was the graphic designer's um, input on the book. We were playing around with. I had the tilde as my uh, as my section marker of choice, but the flames seemed like the best marker because so much of this essay is about um, climate change and and what does it mean to be examining a world that's literally and metaphorically on fire, right? I, I'm, I'm from California and California historically burns every year. I have, you know, friends who've lost family members in the annual fires and, you know, they've never recovered the bodies or the stories or the legacies of these families. Um, and it's very much about, you know, trying to trying to stop this you know, fire from spreading, trying to stay warm in the brutal winters here in Massachusetts, trying to find that fire to keep yourself going when you know, social and political climates are doing everything they can to keep certain groups marginalized and silenced. And so the flames seemed like a really nice connection point uh, between the different sections within the essays, but also as a cohesive uh, image that, that drives the book, which is why it's also featured on the front cover. Mm hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Um, one of the things that that I love about the essay, and I'm hoping since since you brought it into the conversation, we can talk a little bit more about writing from disability, um, is that the essay is is so malleable in terms of what an essay can be formally in terms of content. Um, and often when I'm working with writers, including disabled writers, um, having grown up in a, in a family with disabled people, um, there's this question of, you know, how do I do it? How do I, you know, how do I write when I'm in pain or, or how do I write when, when my mind moves differently than other people's minds do? Um, and, and I keep trying to to say something along the lines of I do it in different ways and with different degrees of efficacy, but that with an essay, there's no such thing as bad content or bad form. It's just about finding the right frame for what it is you can do, right? There are brilliant essays that are working in what seem like aphorisms, and there are, are brilliant essays that work without a paragraph break and there are, are essays on pencils and there are essays on um, climate change and and it's really about like how do you find a way of working that allows what you can do to become an asset and that's about your artistic frame 
that's not about the shoulds of a particular dominant way of making or a perceived dominant way of making. I don't know. Does, yeah. does any of that ring for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there is, I, one of the things I often will tell my students is, is so much of learn learning to write as a disabled writer is is unlearning it's a process of unlearning a lot of writing advice that we've been told um and unlearning things that you're even i think taught in mfa programs or different writing programs so i can't write every day i i can't write every week or even every month i just i just can't if i'm having chronic i'm someone who gets you know has daily chronic pain has to do you know daily physical therapy for various um, disabilities that i have um so i write when i can and that shapes the work you know the work as i've as i've you know written more and more books the work gets more and more lyric gets more and more fragmented and in a good way i think i think that it actually improves the work um, to be writing from the fragmentation of my experience and my time is fragmented because it is broken up you know a, a day the right the writing day is broken up by doctor's appointments and pain and treatments and therapies and so the writing mimics that on the page um, the writing also mimics um, you know the blank spaces and sometimes you do you have blank spaces or blank moments in your life of rest and recuperation. You have um, blank moments where all you know is is pain, all you know is symptom management. Um, and again, that's sort of reflected on the page. And I think that there's a lot, a lot that can be unlearned from, you know, MFA programs and writing programs. So telling students that they have to write every day or that they need to write a certain number, a certain number of words every time they sit down to write, um, telling students that they have to write by hand or at a computer at all. Um, I'm someone that has a, a, some spinal conditions and some spinal um, uh, disabilities. And so I often will write uh, using a, a headset, right? A microphone. I, I don't mm. actually type anything. I just sort of um, narrate um, and, and the computer types it for me. Um, and even something like, you know, the expectations for disabled stories and disabled writers, oftentimes a workshop will ask a disabled writer to like over explain, like tell us everything about your disability because we don't mm -hmm. understand. Um, and the story's not about that. The essay's not about that. Um, and especially for, I think, you know, neurodiverse writers, um, the expectation to prove or to justify an experience is sometimes put on a writer by the workshop. Um, and so unlearning that, that, that uh, pressure to have to always explain or justify. Um, so the more the more writing that I do, the more sort of lyric, the more fragmented, um, I, the more disabled the writing gets. And I think it's only an asset. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Occasionally, I like to to just think back for myself, but also for other writers um, about the essay's origins. And, and most of the time people talk about Montaigne and you know the invention of the essay there um but the invention of the essay in english with like henry cornwallis and some of the first essayists it was this idea that the essay should be a form that isn't too good um and they so so failure was sort of considered a constituent quality of the essay when it first emerged in English. And Cornwallis has this wonderful moment where he's talking about Montaigne and he says, most of Montaigne's essays are in fact essays because 
they're not very good. Like they're fit, they're problems. But the the essays, you know, the ones that have since become anthologized, he's like, those aren't true essays because they're they're too good. That's like basically oration or meditation or something. Um, but this idea that that what might be considered quote unquote failure is something that the essay is like organically comfortable with because that was the first definition of it is this is something where mistake and failure and surprise and divergence and veering and you know the quirky thing that shows up that you didn't expect becomes the prize that that that's the nature of this genre yes yes absolutely yeah I, I think Again, it's, I think it's about it's about unlearning what you think an essay needs to be, and it's about allowing yourself to be odd or allowing yourself to, I don't want to say free associate, but allow, allowing all your oddities on the page. Um, I used to really over-explain and really try to over over transition in between ideas. I, I include a lot of research um, that connects to personal topics, and I used to really try to. I think over explain, you know, now we're talking, we were talking about my father, but now we're talking about, you know, moth larvae, right? Like, <laughs> and, and I don't try to do that as much anymore. I'm hoping that the reader will just go along with me because they're, they're invested in the story or they want to, they want to have the same kind of discovery um, in, in terms of the facts or the research. Yeah. And the delight of just putting two things next to each other mm-hmm. and seeing how they speak. Yeah. 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 Would you be willing to to read a passage? You know, we've been talking about everything that's in the book. I would love for people who are listening to have a chance to hear directly from it. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll read a sort of a shorter section. Um, this is from an essay that comes pretty early on in the book. Um, a lot of the book explores the concept of nostalgia um, in all of its rosy glory and also in all of the ways that nostalgia was first coined as a definition in the 1600s, which when it first came about um, in terms of its origin, it was considered a a very dangerous malady, right? It was considered to be a form of mental illness that could be contagious if it was spread. Um, And so the book is, it really plays with those, those juxtapositions between that sort of sentimental rosiness and this, this sort of darker undercurrent that nostalgia can have. Um, So I'll just read the first couple of pages from that essay. The essay is called In Search of Nostalgia. In the shaded grove, temperatures swell to 70, warm enough that in winter we peel layers from our bodies like the bright-bellied lizards darting like shadows beneath our feet. We crouch beneath branches, make walking sticks of the broken bits, leave our soft prints on the moss-laden path. We don't need to go far to find no one. Solitude and space are easy to come by in our one-stoplight town where most roads are dirt. Drive a mile in any direction from our high school, and the rolling hills embrace you. Valley oak and interior live oak compete for space with the gray pine and manzanita. Their towering branches are the only skyscrapers we rural kids have ever known. We know nothing of cities and nature's scarcity, because all the roads in and out of town lead to the beach. And in summer, we pluck poppies, clutching sunshine in our hands. This is why we do not fear poison oak slinging up the trees of our Eden, though it leaves more than one of us welted and red, plus sticky and miserable. It is easy to forget the fear of what might be when hummingbird sage blooms pink, when blue lumpen and yellow mustard dot the hills, when we go to the beach to line our pockets with sand dollars. Each day after school, we pile into one another's cars and drive a mile or so until the road looks right. 
We park and leave the door unlocked, and we walk into a field over a fence slung low like our jeans. Yes, we kick at the dandelions, but that is only because we are wishing for college or a tank full of gas to drive out to the beach dunes, where we love how the earth gives way beneath us because we aren't afraid yet to fall. We find a spot and sit in a circle under the trees, counting down until the last time we'll be like this. We gather every day after school to play a card game called Magic. Maybe it's the way the creek sounds like laughing, which makes us feel like crying. Or maybe it's because the sun has always made us feel like we can't sit still, like if we don't, if we don't move, we'll burst. Or maybe it's because everything hurts so good at this age, in this place, and we want to linger a little longer. Graduation is coming. Soon we'll scatter, moving to places where we can't park, or at least not for free where we won't be able to look up and see moss drip from the trees, where we won't be able to drive out to the eucalyptus grove in winter and see 10,000 monarchs nestling for warmth, the whole forest rustling and alive. We'll spread out from the central heart of California to bigger places like San Francisco or Los Angeles or Fresno, which we know isn't glamorous, but has multiple stoplights illuminating the loneliness we'll discover. For now, we sit in the woods, imagining worlds, making magic. We survived Y2K and are trying to understand what the television says about weapons of mass destruction in a war we don't want, but also can't figure out. Like when the guy who lost the presidential election says the climate is changing, even though here it never does, all golden warmth. Graduation looms, and with it the realities beyond our tiny town. But no one talks about that. Instead, we cling together in plain sight, storytelling between shadows and sunlight. Even since I was a child, I felt a sweet ache at my core, the kind of satisfaction that left me swooning, unmoored at the same time I could not fathom being more fulfilled. I felt it while driving with my father in his beat-up pickup truck, the two of us bouncing on the stiff seats out to the dump. Every road is a back road when you live in the middle of nowhere. And each time we approached a dip, my father pressed his foot to the pedal and down we went, slipping into the dust, my tummy somersaulting with a delightful and confusing fear. The feeling was the same when I went camping with my parents and the trees looked familiar and foreign, making me believe I'd been there a thousand times before, but also wonder if I was misremembering. Sometimes I'd see a tree in a different park or at my elementary school, and my tummy would drop with remembering, and I'd be happy and sad all at once. One feeling was green, and another was blue, and they swirled together until I wasn't exactly sure how I felt. When I was happy, I was also sad, because every good thing had to end. The smell of applesauce made me miss my grandmother, even when she was in the other room, because she was aging in front of me, and the Nestle quick she stirred up for me in tiny blue glasses was so sweet it started to sting. Often, the surge would accompany memories of home, the smell of sawdust taking me back to my father's workshop, an empty pasture stretching seemingly forever, or the sun hitting the road right as an old song came on the radio. When I moved away to start my life somewhere else, convinced like many millennials that this fresh start would mean success, I missed home all the time. When I moved to Nebraska for graduate school, the sweet ache rarely came. Less often still, when years later I moved to Massachusetts to begin a job. I was so busy making my way in the world that I did not realize how quickly it had changed. 
By the time I stopped to realize, America was no longer the home nation I'd known, but instead a danger I could not fathom. A new climate and political control meant the country was now constantly on guard, our nation pulsing its many grievances. Everywhere was a throbbing hurt, and I missed the homeland of my youth like I missed my actual home, neither of which existed anymore. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Mm, and thank you for choosing. It It does so much of what you'd been talking about earlier, the movement through time, the power of the image, the sense of wonder and what you can register when you're young, feelings as colors. Um, and it does something that, that I wanted to talk about before our time comes to an end that I just think is essential, which is how your father figures into this book um, from the dedication to the amazing final essay. And, uh, and there was just something in my heart that, that said, if I, if I don't bring him into the interview, I will not be doing justice to the book and I want to. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about him as an animating presence in the book, um, how, to, how to approach something so big um, and bring it to the page. Yeah, so um, I started writing about my father um, after the 2016 presidential election because, <laughs> like a lot of folks, um, that moment, that shift in time was a moment where I realized that the father who had raised me was very different than the man I was seeing post-election. Um, and I was really interested in exploring the grief I felt over trying to understand somebody that I had seen as infallible and trying to reconcile somebody that is, was deeply flawed. Um, and so I started writing a lot about, you know, my childhood adventures with him because um, again, we, we spent a lot of time together. My father's work in construction uh, is very closely related to the work that I do as a writer. And I can talk about that um, in just a minute. Um, but one of the things that I found really I think helpful and kind of fascinating about the process of trying to write about my father from both the child's perspective and the adult's perspective was that in trying to sort of understand and appreciate or at least accept somebody who was deeply flawed, I was able to do that for myself as well, right? So so mm. understanding or or accepting someone's just many, many flaws and the many ways that we were so inconsistent in our social and political beliefs and identities um, allowed me to, I think, embrace a lot of my own imperfections or what I viewed as imperfections, um, you know, at the time and, and, and sort of ongoing. Um, so that was the impetus to write about him. Um, the way that he shapes the work is very much, um, this is a book that's set largely outside. It's it's set out in, in California. It's set um, in the in the fossil records and the Great Plains of Nebraska, in the forests of Massachusetts. Um, and this is sort of influenced by my father's work. He was a fence builder. Um, and I'm forever fascinated with the metaphors of fences because I think that they relate very closely to the work that we do as essayists and as writers of nonfiction, because fence builders, they, they build the borders and the boundaries that make the world make sense, right? They build the boundaries that, that keep some things in and some things out. Mm. Um, but a fence builder has to be aware of what's underground because you can't set a fence post um, if you don't have 
the, the hole dug correctly and the concrete poured right. And even the best fence, um, even the best story will fall with time, right? It'll fall with the elements. It can't weather everything. Um, and so I view fence building and, and essaying as very similar, right? You're excavating, you're digging, you're seeing what's underground. You're trying to construct stories and borders. Um, you're trying to create something that will last, something that can be contained, even though you know the elements are going to do everything that they can to erode the story, erode the fence, erode whatever it is that you have built. Um, so, so that's how my father shapes, I think, my work, the way that I view my work. Um, and again, he, he's in so many of these essays, um, in all of his glory and all of his imperfection. Mm -hmm. Sarah Fawn, thank you so much for your time and your work. The book is Halfway From Home. Um, and I recommend anyone who's listening and anyone who cares about the beauty and power of literature. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Sarah Fawn Montgomery, author of Halfway From Home, here on the New Books Network. <laughs>